After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where leaders inspire leaders. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Evan Leong, and with me is my co-host, Carrie Leong. Today's guest is Tim Dick, founder and vice chairman of Hawaii Super Ferry. He is the principal behind usehalf.org, an organization promoting energy conservation. Tim co-founded trustee.org, which has become the Internet's privacy standard. He is a founding board member of Reef Check Hawaii, and an active member of the Hawaii Venture Capital Association and the Hawaii International Film Festival. Please welcome to Greater Good Radio, Tim Dick. Welcome to our show, Tim. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Tim, you are involved and you've started so many businesses and companies. Could you tell us what are you up to nowadays? There's always a lot going on. Uh, certainly Hawaii Super Ferry takes the landslide of my time and continues to do so and will for certainly a while. But I think it's important to... Uh, to diversify your interests and provide, um, you know, as much as you can back into the entrepreneurial and venture community, try to leverage some of the experiences that I've had, as well as some of the community things as well. I think it's always important to be active in the community in tandem with every for-profit, you know, activity that you do. And that's always been a mantra of mine. So you're looking at dual bottom line type situations then? Sometimes a dual bottom line. I mean, certainly uh, the company that I started prior to uh, Hawaii Superferry, grassroots.com, uh, grassroots.org, still around, uh, was a double and even triple bottom line company. So sometimes you can combine them, not always. Certainly use half and some of the for-profit things in association with that can very much be considered a double bottom line. Uh, and it, it certainly the community aspects and the energy savings aspects of Hawaii Superferry themselves can be considered a, a double bottom line, although formerly with our shareholders there, it's only a single bottom line. Maybe you can explain then how use half and the grassroots, how the double bottom line and triple bottom line actually works in those companies. Okay. Well, let's take grassroots because it's really the most obvious um, uh, double bottom line company, very explicitly there. Uh, grassroots is an attempt at making a nonpartisan or a bipartisan political action vehicle that enables individuals, groups, organizations, and companies to take political action, whether it's supporting or opposing various legislation, uh, candidates, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of an engine that helps political action occur. And uh, to me, you know, one of the founding principles of that is that our political process isn't very transparent, and it's hard for people to actually genuinely influence, particularly issues of national importance. And so we felt back in 1999 that the Internet was getting to be a place where it could begin to become an engine of change, something where we could genuinely help enable uh, political change uh, to happen in a nonpartisan way. We're not taking you know, a pro or a con side for a particular issue. And I think, as we've all seen, the Internet is now a major force of political change, whether it's fundraising or it's, I mean, look at all the candidates that are on MySpace today. Look at all the forums that are out there. Look at the, you know, the lobbying engines. So, you know, we were right. We may have timed it a little bit on the early side and so forth. and may have not gotten the kinds of, you know, investor returns we ideally wanted. But we certainly, uh, you know, I think succeeded in the fact that, that it is a, it's, it's done its mission. It's executed against its mission. How does it make any money? Certainly if you have, uh, 
if you're looking to do a broad outreach campaign. Uh, that's something that isn't free. In fact, it's very costly to do grassroots campaigns, particularly whether it's you know telephonically or you know traditional means where you have um, you're either trying to come up with a huge volunteer base or you're looking at, at paying a lot of people to actually start to you know drum up support bases. Well, we thought that the internet would be a great way to do that via viral marketing and other kinds of things, sort of the precursor to what have become the social networking today. And you know you have an ability. Since it's a private domain, we're, you know, it's, it's your agenda, it's your issue that you're out there marketing to actually charge for that. But on a, on a per-action basis, it's a very, very affordable way to go. The Internet is a very affordable mechanism in comparison to, to, to traditional ways of developing political support. How did you start thinking about this double bottom line type of way of doing business? Um, you know, I think it maybe comes from really my parents that the notion of social responsibility is, is something that I think you, you wind up sort of absorbing as a, as, as, as a young person and, or thinking about explicitly, you know, what kind of a responsibility do I have to society? What kind of a citizen do, do I want to be? And certainly there are, you know, entrepreneurs and very successful business people who don't participate that much in social responsibility, although I think that's beginning to change. I think it's really broadening very significantly, and, you know, the trend that you guys are looking at really, I think, is an, ex is an exploding trend. So that, that's made me very happy. But certainly looking back 10, 15 years at some of the things I, I've done, you know, starting World Pages, which was the first Internet white and yellow pages, and then realizing, oh, my goodness, you know, there's going to be privacy issues around people's personal information on the Internet. You know, it's always been out there. You can go to a government office and get information and so on and so forth. But wow, you know, it's all going to be out there. Is this a good thing? How do we manage that? How do we, you know, create a community out of the, the Internet that has some social responsibility? And out of that came Privacy Assured, which uh, is now Trustee, the, the first privacy initiative on the, on the Internet. So it's thinking about what you're doing and what the social implications are and maybe actually doing something that is you know, coherent in the same flavor of that, which we sort of the, the trustee was sort of the, the second part of the bottom line to World Pages, which was simply a for-profit company, wasn't it? It was never explicitly a double bottom line. In fact, I think the term double bottom line didn't exist back in 93, 94 when we were starting that. Uh, but it's, it's thinking about, you know, what your place is in society and whether or not you have responsibility to society when you're doing what amount to game-changing things. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more on Greater Good Radio. After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. How do you sell his company to Akamai Technologies for $3 billion? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. Radio We're back with Tim Dick, founder and vice chairman of Hawaii Superferry. Tim, as we mentioned in the first segment, you know, you're involved with so many businesses. You were born um, in England, 
and you travel a lot. So what brought you to Hawaii? Wow. And now former fiancé brought me to Hawaii. I had been trying to take a two-year sabbatical, and I was not successful in doing that. I made it about a year and a half and, uh, and, uh, and came here. And I was looking around for something to do, and I was really struck by, you know, how scarce transportation was, you know, just the airlines, if you're, you know, if you're uh, a person, and, you know, the airline, air freight, and, and the barge. And this is really striking to me, having grown up in an island nation that's surrounded by ferries and so on and so forth. Uh, and I started looking into to history, and I sort of grew up on the, on the water. I'm sort of a maritime historian and a sailor and so forth. So, you know, scratch my head, you know, what's up with that? You know, how did we get here? I mean... People didn't always fly. They must have been moving on the water. So I uh, started looking at the marketing. Basically, it turned into a feasibility study, and the numbers kept looking. You know, market's huge. Um, you know, moving people and goods on the water is fundamentally lower than cost than flying because it uses a lot less energy, and the assets are cheaper, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the math can work. And, you know, by September... Um, it, it sort of had become effectively the next company. And then September 11th happened, and all the newspapers were crying out for, you know, we need water transportation, we need a ferry service. And Governor Caetano at the time and, and uh, leading legislators like Joe Suki were, were, were really, you know, an outpouring of, you know, is there anybody credible who can come and help us think this through? And so I began to meet with, with some, some of the folks in the ledge, and that led up to meetings with the, the Department of Transportation and, and the governor, and you know, by November, I was I was on planes doing worldwide benchmarking trips, you know, visiting the CEOs of large long haul ferry companies around the world, looking for models and looking for, you know, information about that. So, so for you, you cannot seem to stop doing entrepreneurial things. No, it's a, it's a little frightening. It's it's just it's it's a ridiculous habit, and I would strongly urge all the listeners to you know. You know, to, to temper to temper your enthusiasm here because it can be like a runaway train or like a whole bunch of runaway trains or runaway ferries, I guess, in this case. Do you think that every time you're done with one, you think you're going to stop, but then you don't? No, no, it's just never it's never occurred to me because, you know, there's so many ideas that are going on. For example, one thing that I'm working on right now is enterprise data center level um, energy efficiency. Data centers, all the computers that are in there, they're all running flat out, 24 by 7, and they size the, like the Google complex is sized to, to meet the absolute peak demand. But it's like having a warehouse full of Ferraris and having them all at full throttle, 24 by 7. Well, that's pretty crazy. I mean, how much energy is that worth? You know, is, is that wasting? And if you look at, you know, you know, data centers today consume $6 billion a year of electric power. Well, shoot, what if we could chop that by a quarter or a third? You know, people be willing to pay for that, and boy, that would sure be a good thing for you know. So there's, you know, they're more like ideas, you know, ideas that get grounded in economics, and this obviously has a huge social benefit because we look at all the power that we can save, right? So you, you know, you just keep thinking, and people say, oh, gee, that's an interesting thing, and you put one and two together, and you know, pretty soon it's an idea, and most of the ideas I sort of pass off, or I'll wind up, you know, funding and you know, seed ventures and so forth. But you know, you keep thinking. Endless curiosity, I guess. Curiosity killed the cat. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more on Greater Good Radio. After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. 
Is the greatest part of your workday the leftover lasagna you packed for lunch? Is it quickly becoming apparent that you and everyone you know are smarter than your boss? Just how satisfying is it to wear an untucked shirt on Fridays? It's time you stopped filling a position and started being fulfilled with a job that excites you every day, not just payday. And now is the perfect time to demand more of the work week. The Honolulu Star Bulletin and Midweek Work with Monsters so you can live up to your potential right here. Your calling is calling. Find it at starclassifieds.monster.com. We're back with Tim Dick, founder and vice chairman of Hawaii Superferry. How are you managing multiple businesses at the same time? Well, the answer is I'm not really managing most of them. You know, the, the biggest chunk of my activity, clearly direct activity, is with Hawaii Superferry. Uh, I go to the office every day. There's still a bunch of stuff that I do and so forth. Uh, so some of it is advisory work. Some of it is um, I'm involved in, in financing, and I'm on the board of several uh, companies, uh, mostly on the mainland technology companies and so forth, that are largely to do with the conservation and clean technology and so forth at the present time. So it's really leveraging my time because, you know, once you've gone through a number of startups, there's sort of like the idea and then there's the, the corporate formation process and putting together business plans, raising capital, building the team and so forth. And those are somewhat generic. So that's an area where I can really leverage my experience and bring in and build teams. So from your first experience of your first company, mm-hmm. was did you always have an exit strategy and know that you were going to continue to start something, turn it over, start something, you know, exit that way? Well, certainly if you're, if you're getting outside financing, you must have an exit strategy, otherwise no one's going to give you the money. It's like, hey, you know, hey, Evan, I'd like to borrow, you know, say $3 million, and, yeah, well, maybe you'll get it back, uh, but look at this really cool idea. I was going, oh, gee, I don't know, maybe once, but uh, probably not again. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. So, you know, it's certainly if you're, if you're raising professional money, and even if you're investing your own money, um, you know, it, it can't be the money pit. Not every single idea is going to be a hit, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, ex- exit strategies have to be explicit. You have to think about that, you, even if you're investing it. And this is, an, I think, a, a, a good piece of, of thought for uh, small businesses, whether you're starting a, you know, a bakery or you know, an auto repair. Um, you know, what is your exit strategy for that business? Because even if you run it for your whole life, eventually you're going to get older. Is the strategy you're going to pass it on to your kids? What if the kids don't want to run it? You know, think about your exit strategy, even your personal exit strategy up front. That's so key because there's so many family businesses, especially here in Hawaii. And I guess we don't think ahead to what's going to happen, whether we get sick or, you know, if somebody passes away to pass it on to their children, even if they want to do it. And the sad thing is when they don't want to, what happens? That's right. I don't think that's unique to Hawaii. I mean, certainly Hawaii is a really, really rich uh, culture and history of entrepreneurialism. And I, I think the lack of family business, you know, exit strategies is not unique to here. It's something that you know, <clears throat> we, we don't think of because it's so much wrapped up in our own personal life. What's your exit strategy for your life? I don't know. I might get a hit by a car leaving the studio today, you know, knock on wood here. Um, <clears throat> we'll have the last interview of him then. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> so how do you decide, though, you know, that you're just going to concentrate on this one thing but then also donate your time to these other nonprofit boards and stuff like that? Um, I don't know, some sort of hyperactivity complex, I guess, attention deficit disorder. You know, it used to be known just as a problem child when I was growing up. Now we have a name for it, ADD, so I feel a lot better about that. <laughs> uh, I, I guess part of it is sort of compulsory. Part of it is, is, is other areas where I just have simply innate interests and so forth. So, and, you know, you start to get involved, and then people ask for more of your time, and sometimes you say yes a few t- times too, too often and so forth. 
But, you know, it's a lot of fun. It really is the antidote. Doing stuff that's truly nonprofit uh, has a different kind of a feel than doing stuff in the for-profit world. It's just as hard, maybe harder, because governance is harder. Uh, but at the same time, there's, you know, there's a real just innate satisfaction of, of doing something that isn't about uh, profit in any way at all. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned for more on Greater Good Radio. After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Staying cool on Hawaiian time Neptunites, sunshine in your mouth Neptunites, For bubble tea supplies in your home, at a party or business Contact Bubble Tea Supply at 948-2622 Or online at bubbletea.com Neptunites, sunshine in your mouth Howdy sell his company to Akamai Technologies for $3 billion. Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. Radio.com. We're back with Tim Dick, founding board member of Reef Tech Hawaii and an active member of Hawaii Venture Capital Association and the Hawaii International Film Festival. Were you always into helping the community or did you develop that later in your career? Uh, it's something that I had been doing early in my career uh, when I was an engineer. Um, after I became a consultant, after I left business school, I wound up becoming a global um, uh, corporate management consultant. My responsibilities there were truly global. Um, and at one point, I flew around the world four times without everyone stopping at home. The challenge and one of the, sat the dissatisfaction with that job, ooh, it sounds really cool, you know, global practice head, ooh, great, you know, they lure you into this, it sounds very attractive. And then you realize, holy crap, this really means is I'm trapped on a plane for an average of 26 hours every week for the rest of my life. And that was my long-term average. What I found is that I was not able to have a social life. I was not able to do anything in the community and other kinds of things. I learned a lot. I had a great time, and we, and we did some truly remarkable things. Uh, but at the same time, the trade-off and the cost was enormous. Uh, so one of the reasons I actually left BCG and began pursuing startups was actually to get a life back and to fill back in something that was really sorely missing or a whole bunch of things that were really sorely missing for me. So I think there are careers where, you know, you can fool yourself into deleting the fact that you can have a family and be part of the community, but realistically you can't. So that was one of the reasons I left consulting. That's funny that you said you left consulting to mm -hmm. go into a startup to have more time. Yes. That's funny. Yeah. Well, it's normally opposite and way opposite. Well, the thing you find out is, that, you know, if you have global practice responsibilities, you're basically working 24 hours a day because you're not at home you're on a plane, you're with clients, you're with teams. Your life is simply just not your own. So it is a, 
you can pretend that you're not working, but at the end of the day, you're working 24 hours a day. I thought BCG has some kind of thing where you're not allowed to work over a certain amount of hours or whatever, and if you do... We're not allowed to bill. We're not allowed to bill more than 40 hours a week. Oh, because I read something in Inc. Magazine or or one of it said, oh, you know, they're they're trying to take it easy on their people, and if they work too many hours, then they get flagged and so on. I'm thinking, yeah, uh, I don't know about that. Well, I mean, who knows? I, I think the firm has uh, has really recognized some of the stresses on the consultants. But at the same time, you know, it, you have choices in your career path, no matter what firm you're at. And somehow or other, I sort of got lured into, you know, what sounds like a very sexy kind of position and so forth. And, and what you realize is eventually you're trapped. If you've got clients in Moscow, Redmond, you know, San Francisco, London, and Frankfurt all at the same time, you can't simply say, you know, I'm out of there and I'm not going to be your relationship manager anymore. So, to some extent, I guess I blame myself. I could have, you know, had a lot more San Francisco-based and London-based uh, clients, but uh, I was very focused on what I wanted, to, you know, what I was doing there, and some of the interesting things, the very interesting things that we were doing as a firm. A lot so. of the things that you seem to be involved in are related to the environment, and it, mm-hmm. you know, the environment has always been an issue, but you know, recently it's it's really become um, an issue for many. Mm-hmm. What triggered this passion for you to, you know, help the Reef Check Hawaii? And could you tell us a little bit more about that organization? Yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting story. Years and years ago, back in the early to almost the late 90s, I would charter a large sailboat down in the Caribbean and, you know, take a bunch of friends and we'd go sail. And it was always the second week in December every year. And for the most part, we sailed the same islands. And when I first started going down there, the coral reefs and the, you know, the snorkeling and the diving was just spectacular. And then over time, you know, it seemed to, like, gee, there's, there's less fish here. And then, you know, after a few years, four or five years, you know, something is really, really wrong here. Uh, the coral bleaching was in effect, and you basically just watched reef death, you know, reef death happen over a period of about five or seven years. And uh, that was really, really shocking to me, to watch an entire ecosystem die over a very large area. And when I moved to Hawaii, I realized that the reefs here were actually, they were not in great shape for the most part, but they were much better than the Caribbean. And I thought, you know, this has got to be a good thing to get involved with here because we're not at the, the stage here where we have, you know, major reef death events. And part, of it, part of it is climatological as well, but it seemed like a very logical thing to do. Can't not let something like that happen in front of your eyes and not be really changed forever by seeing a whole ecosystem die. And so it just became a moral issue on my part. You know, I, I've got to do what I can to try to stop that happening here. What's the most innovative social program that you've seen in a for-profit company? Sort of a, a foundation type of a thing. Or basically, you know, for for-profit companies, mm-hmm. trying to figure out right. how they can impact the community in a right. positive way, but not detract mm-hmm. from their business model. Right. You know, what, what's the most innovative thing you've seen been, that's been implemented and worked? I, I really like the, um, the one 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 kind of programs. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but uh, 1% of equity... One percent of employees' time, and one percent in kind, and so forth. And obviously, we're just starting service at Hawaii Superferry, so we can't really fill out, you know, fill out all of those pieces. But uh, we gave one percent of the equity, one percent of the stock in our company, to uh, the Hawaii Entrepreneurial F- Foundation at the founding of the company. And so, as that equity becomes valuable, we have a liquidity event and so forth. That becomes ca- that turns into cash that, that can then be used for. Uh, good in the community and so forth. One percent of our employees' time to to you know targeted uh, nonprofit activities. We're just now 
barely growing up to the point where we have enough you know, employees to actually make a difference. Once we get into service and we sort of then have a level employee base, we'll have about, you know, almost 200 people there. That can really start to make a difference. And then 1% in kind. We have a great service, and certainly particularly for neighbor islands, we can really make a difference, whether it's, you know, helping, you know, kidney dialysis patients in, in Kauai because they don't have dialysis centers, you travel back and forth, whether it's helping the school bus, this, the school team that can't afford to travel to a, uh, you know, a sports championship or a hula hall or whatever it is. We can really make a difference in the community with the kinds of transportation services that we're providing. And so that, you know, 1% in kind. I'm a big proponent of that because it's, it's not a huge burden on the company. If you think about it carefully, most companies have ways to really make that work and really make a difference. It does, it, it, it does take some thought, but that's a model I really like and really espouse. Thanks for joining us today on Greater Good Radio. For more information or a transcript of today's show, please visit us online at greatergoodradio.com. This is your host, Evan Leong and Carrie Leong, saying please join us next time for another episode of Greater Good Radio Hawaii.